We were only hours away from the beginning of the Jewish High Holy Days, which stretched from Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The ten days in total start tonight at sunset. Any of you that grew up hearing the book of Genesis, it talks about that rhythm of evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. That's why you, the Jewish holidays start in the evening and then go. Uh, and they're known collectively as the days of repentance, the days of awe and Lashana Tovah, uh, Happy New Year to any of you who do celebrate or have people in your family who celebrate Rosh Hashanah. The approach of the High Holy Days makes this an auspicious time to reflect on the uh, Jewish philosopher, his life and teachings, Martin Buber, and how they can potentially continue to guide us today. Buber was born in 1878 in Vienna, Austria, and one set of early events particularly shaped his life. When Buber was three years old, his parents separated. In particular, he remembered his mother leaving without telling him goodbye. He saw her at a two-story window as she walked away. Uh, He was soon sent to live with his paternal grandparents in Ukraine. Yes, that's the same Ukraine that's in the headlines, but we're setting that aside for right now. Uh, neither his uh, father nor his grandparents explained to him that his mother had eloped with a Russian officer. Uh, and in his own words, he just felt too timid to ask what all was happening and why. After living with his grandparents for quite a few months, he found himself impulsively asking an older girl who lived nearby about what was happening And she was the only one who would tell him honestly and frankly what was happening. She said, no, your mother is not coming back anymore. Some moments we never forget. And almost eight decades later, looking back near the end of his life, Buber shared that whatever I have learned in the course of my life about the meaning of meeting and dialogue between people, it springs from that moment when I was four when someone was willing to be honest with me and the truth and insight that flowed from that. I find that really fascinating and moving that the seeds for a life of trying to bridge distances and cultivate connection and dialogue were planted in this decisive moment at such a young age of someone just being willing to tell him honestly what was going on. Uh, Buber lived with his paternal grandparents for about a decade and finally returned home at age 14 when his father remarried. And although his father was a member of a much more liberal Jewish congregation compared to his much more orthodox uh, grandparents, uh, Buber's own openness was yet more remarkable still. As many of you know, my wife is Jewish, and I've had the fortunate opportunity to attend many um, Jewish events, uh, including many bar and bat mitzvahs. And it's unusual, you might guess, to hear the Christian scriptures quoted at um, a Jewish uh, coming-of-age service, and that's quite understandable, honestly, given the history of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism within Christianity. But when Buber became a Bart Mitzvah, became a son of the covenant, he quoted not only from traditional Jewish sources, but also from the German poet Schiller and from the Christian epistle of 1 Corinthians. He was always wide-ranging in what he was interested in learning about. Buber had this lifelong interest in building bridges through being in conversation with diverse 
people and sources. He called his approach a life of dialogue. Uh, it can be easy for some of us, this may or may not be true for you, but it can be easy to sometimes just slip into autopilot. Has that ever happened to you? You're just kind of going through the motions in your day and in your life. And what Boomer tried to do was to guide us back, to wake us back up to an engaged response to our everyday life and to whoever we might meet along the way. Now, I'll admit that prospect can feel exhausting. There are definitely times, most of the time, that when I get on an airplane, I put in the earbuds, I open the book. I don't really want to have a life of dialogue, because when people find out I'm a minister, they want to tell me about their problems. I don't necessarily want to hear, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I'm much more interested, honestly, and there's a reason I'm a minister of a congregation and not a chaplain. I'm much more interested in hearing about the problems of people I'm going to be in ongoing relationship with. That's just me. You know, uh, I don't... It's really exhausting for me just to meet people and go super deep and then, oh, we're never going to talk again. Like, I don't know. Even though Boober would say... And, and this is true for me. I know it's, it's happened to me on airplanes when I've met for people and had transformative conversations. Anybody? Has you ever met a stranger and had just a profound transformative conversation? Yeah, and so Boober wants to nudge us to that, uh, as, as exhausting as that can sometimes be. But he's not saying never rest or take care of yourself. He's rather inviting us to notice when we've been shut down for too long, when we're just constantly on autopilot, or when we're just, as he was as a child, just totally closed off. And to open ourselves to the transformation that can happen when we risk direct, honest conversation with another person. And almost four decades after that, his four-year-old encounter with that neighborhood girl, he crystallized these reflections most fully in 1923 in a book called I and Thou. For Buber, this ideal of an IU relationship in which two people are being willing to risk being vulnerable with another as close long-term friends um, often only do, for Buber, that I-thou communication was open, it was direct, it was mutual, uh, it was present, spontaneous, without judgment, uh, without agenda. More often, however, Buber observed that we're in these kind of I-it relationships. You know, we're just like, you know, transactional. Uh, we just meet people and they're my seatmate or they're my cashier or they're my whatever. So, and we're just relating to them almost as an it instead of a you. Uh, I should hasten to add that Buber readily grants that neither he nor anyone else can constantly be in that I-you place. You know, uh, you can't maintain that. And even when we have these moments of direct, intimate communication, they devolve back into it, you know, it, I, it relationships um, eventually at various points. I first read Buber's book almost 20 years ago, and this may seem like a fairly um, simple framework, but at least for me, and I, I know for many others because it's uh, maintained a bestseller, that it actually is a really helpful framework to keep in mind that I've just noticed over the years, it's just occurred to me of, wow, I just treated that person like an it. And that's because of having read Boober's book, or sometimes occur to me, wow, that person really saw me. Or, wow, that person really let me see them. That I-you relationship. Boober would go further that parts of nature for him, such as even like a tree or a plant, can also sometimes be a vow to him if you really notice the individuality, the particularity of that particular plant. Boober even wrote of a time that really profoundly, mystically even, uh, and unexpectedly, a piece of mica, a rock, 
became a vow to him, though fleetingly. He says that on a gloomy morning, I walked upon a highway and I saw a piece of mica on the road. I lifted it up and I looked at it for a very long time. And suddenly, it was only when I raised my eyes from that piece of mica that I realized I had not been conscious of object and subject. It wasn't in the moment. It was only afterwards that he realized that there had been no subject-object relationship. It's like he had been one with that rock. And he said, here's the thing too. I looked at it again and the unity didn't return. It was just something that he, that happens sometimes with these relationships. We sometimes stumble backward into these senses of connection in ways that aren't always repeatable. Indeed, sometimes the connection doesn't happen despite our best efforts. There's some fascinating accounts over the years. I won't go into the full details of Buber's various attempts at interfaith dialogue, in particular Jewish-Christian dialogue. And sometimes they were really successful, and he broke down boundaries, and he was able to make people see there's a stereotype in the Christian tradition where often people relate to Jews today as if they were the Jews as described in the Bible. And and Buber was like, see me, I'm a real human being with differences and distinctions, right? And sometimes, sometimes people were able to see that, and other times they treated him more like an it. So other times he would confess afterwards like that, that there's a boundary, he said, beyond which the possibility of dialogical encounter ceases and only the reporting of factual information remains. I, I sometimes liken this unto, sometimes in talking to someone else, I feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall and nothing's really happening to the brick wall, but my head's starting to hurt. You know, he would say sometimes he's giving his best effort to connect with that person. It's just not happening. He says, Buber said, I cannot fight against an opponent who is thoroughly opposed to me, nor can I fight against an opponent who stands on a different plane than I am. Even Buber, that great champion of I-thou relationships, was willing to admit that it would only work if the other person were willing to treat him, too, as the dynamic, evolving, complex human being. I should emphasize as well that Buber's worldview and actions extend far beyond the interpersonal. When Hitler seized power in Germany, Buber continued to be a leading voice within the German community. He didn't run away and hide. Uh, uh, to limit myself just to one quote from Buber during that period that particularly stands out to me as a particularly resonant in our own time of rising authoritarianism, of climate change, of mass shootings, Addressing the German-Jewish community shortly after Hitler seized power, Buber said, The world has become unreliable. It is up to us to make the world reliable again for children. I just found that, I found that so uh, moving and challenging, that the world has become unreliable, and it is up to us to make the world reliable again for children. Because Buber kept speaking out, the Gestapo eventually uh, forbid him from either lecturing publicly or from any form of teaching. And in 1938, at significant personal and financial cost, Buber, his wife, and quite a few of his closest family members left Germany for Palestine. It's also significant to consider in regard to Hitler that Buber's I Thou provides a powerful lens for interpreting uh, Hitler's own autobiographical um, manifesto, Mein Kampf. Buber's primary emphasis on relating to each individual as a unique um, vow of sacred worth um, contrasts with the fact that Hitler actually completely excludes the second person, what in German is the, word, the um, pronoun du. He completely excludes that from Mein Kampf. 
In Mein Kampf, there is an I, there is a we, there is a they, but there's no you that would allow for an intimate relationship. Hitler does not allow himself to be seen in any form of frailty and does not obligate um, himself to anyone else in their frailty. He merges himself with this strong, idealized we and projects all weakness onto they. The problem was never him or we. It was always they. There is a pure, good we that is no peril of being, and that is in peril of being corrupted by them. If only they, the evil forces, could be eliminated, we would be saved. And on this point, it's significant that in 1939, on the first anniversary of Kristallnacht, that was the night when windows were smashed all over Germany in Jewish-owned buildings, Buber published an article in the Tel Aviv daily newspaper, Haaretz, titled, They and We. So this famous author of I and Thou posted this article on They and We. And his goal was to highlight how different the Nazi worldview was from what was really possible for human beings. At the same time, Buber was honest that from the time he fled Germany in 1938 and continuing for more than a decade, the German people in many ways became a they to him. That may have happened to you sometime, that you know, despite your best intentions, people were just, it became too hard. For quite a few years after the end of World War II, he continued to feel unable to return to German to Germany to speak in front of what he said had become this faceless German public. He just couldn't face it. The shattering betrayal of the Holocaust had left him unable to take the risk of experiencing them as individual yous, much less as a vow. One of the experiences that allowed him to begin to shift internally is that in 1951, the University of Hamburg in Germany offered him the Goethe Prize, uh, named after arguably the greatest German literary figure of the modern era. This offer put Buber in a really awkward position of, do I accept an award from Germans. On one hand, he didn't want to give the appearance that accepting award meant all was forgiven. On the other hand, he wanted to support those that were trying to shape Germany's future to be not like Hitler, but like Goethe, you know, like this great humanist um, poet and writer. He ultimately accepted the award on the condition that the prize money be given to an organization promoting Arab Jewish understanding. When I learned that, I was just, I was like, that's Incredibly, I was like, I see what you did there. <laughs> you know, like you both built a bridge back to the Germans and for, for all the people back in um, Palestine that you knew would criticize you for doing that, you reminded them of the, the own work they had to do to build bridges. Uh, about a decade later in 1962, Buber also famously spoke out against the execution of Adolf Eichmann one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. For Buber, this stance had nothing to do with supporting Eichmann and everything to do with his consistent opposition to the death penalty. Buber said that Eichmann should be made to feel that the Jewish, the Jewish people were not utterly exterminated by the Nazis. He thought that death actually allowed Eichmann to escape and, act, and also compromise the integrity and the ethics of the Jewish people. Uh, and that uh, perhaps Eichmann should be put to work on the land, on a kibbutz, forced to farm the soil of Israel to see Jewish young people surviving and thriving all around him and realizing every day, he said, that the Jews survived his plan for us. Would not this, Buber asks, be the ultimate and more fitting punishment? For Buber, it's more important to be true to his conscience than to sacrifice his integrity in a vain attempt to be universally beloved. 
And although he was beloved by many, he was also usually respected even by his critics, which I think is, is pretty remarkable. Indeed, a few months after Eichmann's execution, David Ben-Gurion, the prime minister of Israel, who really didn't appreciate Buber speaking out against executing Eichmann, uh, wrote a note on Buber's birthday that included the line, I honor and depose you. Happy birthday. <laughs> so, Buber died a few years later in 1965 at the age of 87. Uh, significantly, in the spirit of his co- uh, commitment to a life of dialogue, he left a substantial sum in his will to double the number of scholarships to Arab students at Hebrew University. At Buber's funeral, the closing eulogy was delivered by a colleague and friend of many decades whose remembrances including these words. Let us be honest that we, his friends, were troubled by his decision to go to Frankfurt in 1953 to accept the Peace Prize for the German book trade. We were not sure that the time had come to be in Germany again, but Buber went. But he didn't touch the money. He donated it to organizations working for peace with Arabs. And he was also ready to be virtually alone in his opposition to Eichmann's execution. It was the stand of a great teacher. In the spirit of I and thou, Buber's friend concluded the eulogy by addressing Buber as a you. He said, you were a blessing to us. Your memory is a blessing to us. May your memory continue to be a blessing and a guide to coming generations. You have done your share. May something like that be said of all of us as we, in how we choose to live our lives. Buber's life and teaching are a reminder calling me back to the potential that exists in any human-to-human encounter. The choice is ours whether we will choose at any given time to risk opening ourselves. You know, do we open our book? Do we put in our earbuds? Yes, sometimes we do. But Buber invited us to risk sometimes opening ourselves to all that can emerge from open, direct, mutual, present, spontaneous communication, no judgments. No pre-planned agenda. In that spirit, as contemporary you use, open to drawing wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science, one of the invitations of this time of year in the Jewish tradition is to practice forgiveness, the cultivating, again, of atonement. That word atonement sounds fancy, but it's just at one Right, making at one again what has been broken or come apart. And we're also a little less than a week after fall equinox, marking the full first day of autumn as we sang about in our opening hymn. This coming, this time of falling leaves is also an auspicious time to experiment with letting go. What do you want to let go of in your life that you've been carrying for too long? That being said, it's important to be honest about what authentic forgiveness is and isn't, what is and isn't safe as far as the connections we make. Not talking about cheap forgiveness that makes us someone's doormat for repeated abuse. Forgiveness is a practice, and it's actually not that different from other practices, like practicing the piano, practicing free throws, uh, going to the gym. If we consistently practice forgiveness, we actually do get better at it over time. The same is also true of unforgiveness. You can also get better at holding grudges <laughs> if that's what you're practicing. As the proverb says, though, refusing to forgive someone over a long period of time, it's like drinking poison yourself and hoping the other person dies. 
One of the most helpful touchstones that I found about forgiveness is from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, that the final step of forgiveness is not always renewing the relationship. Sometimes it's just releasing the relationship uh, and giving yourself and the other person freedom. So having learned just a little bit more about Buber's life and teachings, I invite you to notice if in our service this morning, if this has brought anything up for you. As you think about the practice of forgiveness, if you, as you think about this invitation to connect with others, is there a particular name that is just on the tip of your tongue? Is there a face that's flashing through your mind right now? You may not be ready to fully forgive or reconnect with this person right now, but in the words of one meditation teacher, maybe experiment with this intention toward this person. I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. Just that. I forgive you as much as I can in this moment. We have more time. I'm going to tell you more things. Uh, if you look at this chart, I didn't think we'd have a time to get to this, but if you look at this chart on the front of your order of service, uh, I, I think... This is nerdy, but I think this is super fascinating. Uh, just those of you who have spent much time with translation, I, I always find it really interesting when people are translating in good faith. So we're kind of setting aside people that are sort of willfully translating something in a manipulative way. Um, you know, Smith in 1937 uh, and Kaufman in 1970 were both reading the same German words and in good faith translating it in really different Ways, and that's because, you know, there isn't, the, and, and to me it's a really interesting metaphor for the life of dialogue, the way two people can, you know, this, it's, it's even more pronounced in translation, but it's, it's true too, even in English, that if you ever open a dictionary just of English, right, is there ever, if, if it's a big enough dictionary, is there ever just one definition of a word, right? And you notice if you look in like the Oxford English Dictionary, words can almost change to the opposite, sometimes just like literally change to the opposite meaning over time. It's, it's really fascinating. And in particular here, that first, so even translating just the title of, um, in German, it's ich und du. And the, even in those three words, there's a whole lot going on. One, in German, there's a really interesting difference in pronouns than with English. In German, unless it's the first word in a sentence, I is always lowercase, ich. Uh, and in English, what is I always? Uppercase, right? Except in the iPhone, right? The ironically lowercase I in the iPhone, even though that's really all about us, right, narcissistically staring into this black mirror, right, so, and and then in German, you is always uppercase, right, so I think that's really interesting how we can be shaped by language, right, the way in which, so we, the I is lowercase and the you is what's prioritized. Also that word do, uh, there's another German pronoun, um, C-S-I-E, that is what you would use for most people that you meet. You only use do for someone that you've, you know, Rick and I to use do with each other would have to mutually agree to that. Otherwise, when we first met, we would use C for, for each other until we agree that we want to enter into kind of a, a long-term friendship of respect and equality. Otherwise, you'd stay. So, so Buber using do is really significant. He's saying it's this sort of intimate thing. And then also it's interesting. Do is also what you use for God. Uh, it's the in, for intimate, a sacred encounter. So it's, that, that's where you see Kaufman, I mean, Kaufman chooses to say you and, um, 
Smith says thou, right? They're both right. It's just emphasizing different, different parts of it. And I think that translation just invites us to be um, curious and aware of the ways in which even just speaking the same technical language, words can just have, you know, you may be using a word that you don't know that this person's father may have shamed them over, right? And you're just using it innocently. There's just all these associations, all these meanings that can come out if we're aware of, and again, using that do, Buber's inviting us to be aware that this human being we're encountering has a past that is deep and rich and varied and a present that is rich and complex and a future that go, and just to be aware of all of that instead of just an it relationship. Um, you know, I'm also aware, for Buber also emphasized, and for him this was a good thing, we live in an age of xenophobia, an age which just means other, like f- fear of the other. And for Buber, it was exactly the opposite. He was, fa- he, he was really, he's like, to me, people I meet, they are other. I don't know them, but I want to. I want to get to know them better. And so he was, he was, it was, it was like xenophilia, right? It was like love of the other. He just, he deeply saw that the other was, this person is fully other to me. I don't know who they are. They aren't just like a cashier and that's all this person is, right? No, they are a fully other human being. And, and then the same thing then becomes true of us to be, and that's, that was what was so important to him to be without agenda is to allow yourself to be other to you. To be surprised that, oh, I thought I knew where this conversation was going and all the potential. And to be surprised, wow, there is other within me. There's more within me, more possibility within me. Uh, and, and, and again, though, I'll fully admit, like I can think of like um, where we live now, I do know. How many people know peop- the, the names of the people on both sides of them? It's pretty good. I think that's actually fairly rare. Uh, I do know, I include one of them has a key to my house, right? And it's been really helpful sometimes to trust him with that. Because there's been a time like, we're stuck in traffic, can you go let my dog out, right? It was really helpful because we're willing to do that. But I can think of a converse example. We also knew the names of our people in another place, I won't name where we lived, uh, not in Frederick. Uh, when my wife, we'd had this great conversation with this older woman uh, in, in the yard. And then one time she invited Megan in. And that conversation included her pulling out a handgun, just which I understand, older woman living alone had a handgun, but was just kind of waving it around. And it was kind of like, wow, all of a sudden this dialogue just got scary unintentionally. You're not meaning it to be, but like, yeah, things can do sideways, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, I invite you to carry this with you into the next week to just notice, uh, I- am I currently in an I-it relationship or am I risking you and to, and you can notice that in retrospect but sometimes you may even find yourself noticing it during so as you prepare to go from this place and into the week to come may you continue your journey in love care for one another care for this one earth do you know that earth, the earth can be a you to us as well if we let it we don't have to treat the earth just like an it like a thing to be used right we can treat it as of sacred worth So care for one another, care for this earth, do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love or peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.